Never in the history of the world have the merchants of obscenity had available to them the modern facilities for disseminating this filth. Disseminating this filth. The onslaught of the communist masters of deceit. Bingo. Sluts. Inco. Comma. Sluts. Inco. Comma. Sluts. Inco. Comma. Hello, hello. We're all here on this beautiful December night. It was a nice day. Yeah, it was. I ran today. Congratulations. Thank you. It is cause <laughs> I don't usually run. So we'll break good times tonight. How far did you run? Where did you run? I just ran along the waterfront in Jersey City here. That must have been an amazing view. It is great. It was very foggy <laughs> today. It's kind of eerie today. Yeah, it was like nice and spooky. And I just want to make it clear that the way I run is walking to sprints to like kind of a skipping thing <laughs> and like mm. cycling through this. I don't run like regular people. It's so, too boring. So like your namesake. Yeah, a little bit. There's some hops and some skips for sure. So that was good. It was nice. You had to run off the dream. Yes, I did. Uh, I had a very vivid dream that Elon Musk was courting my sister. He was very in love with her. And in order to prove to me that he was not indeed a bad person, he was like willing to throw his money at anything I asked. So I, of course, asked him to fund my love long-standing dream of uh, buying all the edible food that grocery stores are going to throw away and uh, give it to people who need it. And Elon Musk said, I'll do it. I'll do whatever it takes in this dream. He obliged you? Yeah, he did oblige me. He was like, yeah, give me more or whatever. And then in the dream state, the skeevy is part to me is that I have a moment I remember from the dream where I'm like, oh, no, I like Elon Musk. <laughs> it was really bad. I it felt did, very real. Do you have an accent? He did, but it was like very slight, like the best case scenario you could ask for from a South African, I'd say. It was very funny because it was like, he was doing all this in the midst of some kind of party my sister was having. And she was like flittering about putting hors d'oeuvres out or whatever. Like I had not yet spoken to her and gotten her feelings <laughs> on the matter. This is kind of a theme for me where some figure that I will detest or at least be critical of in some way will show up in a dream and be either like very kind or like it'll be like sexy and uh, it's awful. This luckily was not sexy. Well, I've been reading Freud's interpretations of dreams. So that gives me... <laughs> Which is the, always a terrible idea. That book is considered his masterpiece. 
Yes, I know. I, I just think his feelings on dreams are so dominant. You know, sometimes you just think you have gills or whatever. It's just you're in the dream. Well, really, Elon Musk is the patriarch you never knew. And he's the eternal father figure that you needed to replace with. That's my Freudian analysis. I don't well, know. He, the thing is, is that I feel like I have at least three different types of dreams by my own estimation. So one type of dream is like this sort of mundane rehashing of something that's recently occurred for me. You know, like I'll just be at the same place I recently was or whatever. I won't remember a lot of those dreams. Then I'll have a dream like this one I had last night where it'll I'll have this very vivid moment of having like an entire conversation with Elon Musk who's trying to impress me. And it'll be interesting because it'll stay with me, you know. And then sometimes I have like dreams that seem designed to send me a message, like where I'm like, someone's playing a trick on me in the astral plane. One in particular is I had this very distinct dream of being in a lighthouse. And at the top of this lighthouse, there's kind of this very complex, what is that called when it tracks the stars, but it's a machine. It was in Lovecraft Country. <laughs> Sexton, observatory, telescope, what are we saying? Yeah, but it's like a steampunky type thing. It's got visible gears <laughs> there is also a telescope in this dream but then my father it's my father but he's in like kind of 16th century garb turns to me and says integrity it's the most important thing bam end a dream and so <laughs> like, that to me seems like sort of a prank on me from the beyond like it seems yeah like i mostly a, just a, dream different people are angry at me who have been been angry at me in the past. <laughs> nice. Also, in the first dream, it sounds like Elon Musk was trying to get you to pimp out your sister, like literally. It was very much like he already had established a relationship oh, with I my see, sister, but then was aware that I despised him. Okay. Oh, so she, he was uh, so trying he, to curry favors. Exactly. With you. It was kind of almost like he was willing to do anything. And all of my suggestions were like, feed these people, <laughs> fix this thing. And he was like, I'll do it. I'm fucking crazy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which is my dream of like, that is the only way a super wealthy person could be good to me is if they were like, I'm fucking crazy, man. I'm going to feed all these bitches. <laughs> like, just. <laughs> chaotic good disruptive force that uh well, don't say disruption no that's the word they all use yeah like market disruption yeah but i say it because i could see this person pursuing that same kink they have for disruption but it almost by mistake having an actual material good <laughs> consequence well i'd so. say dreams are stupid but i'm also reading floyd and by reading floyd i mean watching secondary sources of dubious quality on youtube about lacan so mm. you know i have to pretend to give a shit about dreams now too yeah i know that's what i said about reading freud i was responding to that and referencing it yeah. from earlier 
It's a weird thing that when you have to give a shit about something you haven't had to give a shit about. Yeah, because, like, it's fake. (laughs) (laughs) And made up nonsense. And uh, what is not? Uh, (laughs) Material reality. Whoa. I said it. Well, we just got, like, an extra burst of Marlowe. Yeah, cool. Yeah, we did. Or we got some interference from the beyond. The beyond, yes. Because because when I said material reality, because that would have been cool. It kind of was actually. (laughs) It was the aurora borealis from the movie Frequency. Sure. um, Where we're just gonna start talking to like 1980. The premise of the movie was they were going through the dial of a radio receiver. What year was this? 2000. Raymond Chandler. The novelist who had a character named Marlo, and therefore I know who it is. No, it's... um, Joseph Conrad. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, it's uh, Jim Kvitsen with Dennis Quaid. (laughs) You sound like a... Randy Quaid. Yeah, you sound like a Homestar Runner character trying to pronounce (laughs) celebrity names. Anyways, it's about a guy in like 1999 who's flipping through a radio receiver and he can pick up that in 1969. Oh, Jim Caviezel. Yeah, Caviezel. Yeah. And it's only when the Aurora Borealis is over the sky that he's able to pick up frequency from the past. It was like my favorite movie when it's like Okay, that's specific and also I relate, but not to this particular movie. It's written by an Emmerich who is not at all related to Roland Emmerich, so that's good. Guys, I just watched for the first time Wolf of Wall Street. How wow. about that Did rape scene that ass? isn't presented like a rape scene? Oh, it's definitely rapey, and I definitely it's, it's not the rape scene. It's not just rapey. It's a rape scene. Yeah, it's a rape Literally scene. Literally the first thing that comes to mind with that movie, sorry. Wow, I haven't seen it in a while. I honestly don't remember. Like when, when he's raping his wife. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh. it's very presented as if this movie was written for a universe that totally does not believe marital rape is rape. Because it's just like, oh yeah, this happens, right? All right, I have lots of thoughts on this movie. I hope we can opine. Have you both seen it? Because I I thought when it was in theaters, mostly just remember that. Sorry. (laughs) I definitely saw it. I remember uh, someone I know saw it with the idea that it was like an aspirational movie. Okay, I have lots of thoughts on that. Yeah, and um, that's always haunted me. Uh. (laughs) I have lots of thoughts about that because... To me, it follows a pattern of those kinds of things happening in the Obama era specifically, where critiques and criticisms of capitalism and fame and uh, celebrity are cast in these kind of anti-heroes where they put a lot of emphasis on the hero, but not a lot of emphasis on the anti I guess Mad Men might fit into that a bit. Mad Men, BoJack Horseman, Rick and Morty. BoJack and Rick and Morty came out during the Trump years, didn't they? No. Really? Fuck. Yeah. They both came out in like 2015, 2014. Yeah, okay. I forgot how long time is. My bad. Rick and Morty came out in 2013. Same year that... um, Is that just the Wolf of Wall Street? Okay. No. 
Okay. This is the original release from December right, 2nd, 2013. Yeah, it just didn't get like popular. Huh. <laughs> Cuz we were watching BoJack before the election. Okay. You and I me. Guess I for yeah, I guess I forgot. And that also came out in 2014. I'm looking it up. Well, I mean, and- larger than that, there was a general like anti-hero craze during that period. There was also Walter White. Yeah, no, Walter that was pretty White. obvious. And arguably, it all kind of is this post-Sopranos thing. Archer also, uh, but yeah, Sopranos, all these kind of prestige, you know, so like to me watching this movie now, it seems very much in a post-recession criticism because like there was a whole period of time where there was a bunch of recession movies Mm -hmm. after like 2009 up until 2012, you know, once the second term of Obama kind of kicked off, there were these movies that were like, okay, so the recession happened, Wall Street kind of fucked us, let's criticize fame, celebrity, and this like vast expansion of wealth that happened over like a 30-year period of time that was like under our nose the whole time that we knew about, and there were warning signs. A lot of it was indulgence and exactly what they show in Wolf of Wall Street, but it's set in this way that's very glorifying of that. The other aspect of that is... It's presented as that's what it is, but that's not what it is. Right. Like Jer- Jordan and- Belfort was a con artist. He wasn't really, he, he didn't even really rise to the level of one of those firms that took down the economy. He was just a guy who tricked old ladies into giving him money because he sweet talked them. That was it. And like, there's a line in the movie I remember where Jordan mm-hmm. Belfort is like, you know, what I'm doing is really nothing. You should see what I think he name dropped Goldman Sachs. That was when the FBI came to right, his boat. invest him on the boat yeah yeah and he's like yeah you should see what those guys at goldman sachs are doing and it's like literally yeah he's getting investigated because he's not really a respected integral firm within our system that uh no he's getting investigated because he's the low class right. person <laughs> he is. pulling off the scheme okay to season two of sopranos one of the episodes starts with them calling names to take an examination to qualify for being a stockbroker and so they call out christopher Santi, one of the uh-huh. guys and this asian kid raises his hand yes. and says here who chris paid to basically sit in in the classroom and that's basically half a step below what jordan belford was yeah like he's just some guido douchebag who's like yeah i could like sweet talk some old ladies But it goes back to what you said, Bunny. The amount of people I've heard either watch the movie and then glorify the protagonist, which is clearly supposed to be a critique of the protagonist. Or it's people... It also sucks because uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is very good in the role. And I find that some people have a hard time distinguishing. Also, the (laughs) movie, I'm fairly certain, materially helped Jordan Belfort out. (laughs) More so than Henry Hill. And I think actually that might be a way to attack it because the thing with Scorsese is you talk about this 
era of anti-heroes that this took place in. But also, almost every one of Scorsese's movies is about an anti-hero. So there's a lot of points of comparison we could make. What were you going to say, Bunny? I wasn't being entirely facetious when I said they went after Jordan because he was like relationally in this environment a lower class person. Oh, now you're calling him by his first name? You got a rapport with him? Yeah, we're familiar now. <laughs> but yeah, and I also said that uh, because Leonardo DiCaprio was really good in the role, um, I also think people have a hard time watching the movie and not interpreting him being good in the role as like him being positive um and yes this is me judging a lot of average viewers as being like incredibly stupid this way <laughs> like i'm well, fully, that's admitting they are. fully admitting this i really enjoy an anti-hero character when it's played well so i kind of zone in on this and i do find like similarly there are people who watched breaking bad and identified with Walter White way past the point in the narrative story where you could really sympathize with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but because Brian Cranston is like really talented in that role, I do think that like contributes to it. And conversely, everyone started hating Daenerys Targaryen at the exact time you were supposed to like her. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. It's a a movie, as I said, that's stuck in this second term of Obama where capitalism is like gearing up again and ready to celebrate a second wind. It's also like just a really hard not wanting to learn any lessons from what happened that led up to the 2009 crash, you know? All that derivatives trading, all of that like weird bullshit. Because people are really addicted to the idea that by, you know, some clever scheming and scamming and adding up percentages of cents and what have you, that you could become rich. It's like, even though they name-checked Gordon Gecko in the movie, they didn't learn any of the lessons of Wall Street by Oliver mm-hmm. Stone. Which is weird because Oliver Stone is the least subtle filmmaker who has ever (laughs) fucking made a goddamn movie. I kind of like that movie, but I generally hate Oliver Stone. Yeah, me too. I don't like Ollie, especially in the 90s, except for The Doors. But I generally don't like Oliver Stone's movies. Wall Wall Street's a better movie, or at least a better critique of Wall Street than the than Wolf of Wall Street is sort yeah, of... I mean, again, the thing is, Wolf of Wall Street isn't a critique of Wall Street because he wasn't really even a Wall Street guy. He was just... Yeah, that's like, true. He was just some dude who was committing crimes. Like, they weren't even like, oh, these are white-collar crimes. They were just crimes. He was, like, lying to get people to give him money under false pretenses, essentially. And then he was also getting other people to lie. Total Clinton, as they say. Yeah. Um, And then he was, like, hiding the money, and the international part of it was probably the more interesting part of it, but also the more fantastic part of it. Going to Switzerland, you know, it felt like kind of like a Bond movie or, you know, international spy thriller. 
Yeah, yeah, it was definitely glamorized. Um, and I think that is also, I did mention earlier, there was somebody I know personally who I had already seen Wolf of Wall Street and I saw them and they were about to see it and they were planning to see it with this like very aspirational view. Like, yeah, that's my shit. Like, blah, blah, blah. And I just think some people are very attracted to just a general like aesthetic of the idea of being just big time hustler man um, kind of thing. Like it doesn't matter that, that he was literally lying to little old ladies and then hiring other people to do the same because that eventually he had a yacht, right? He threw money at that person, remember? Mm -hmm. That's all these people want to do. I'm just really fascinated with the ways people think about large amounts of money and their ability to get it in a myriad of ways. Because there's that scene on the yacht where he throws money at the SEC, what, whoever, right? FBI. So, I, who I thought was in Frequency, but was actually in Daily Edition. You're just going down this memory lane that I don't share with you, dude. <laughs> Early edition. You'd get the cat with the newspaper. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it would be tomorrow's newspaper. That's the FBI agent. Yeah. I, I just think that that's a real show. It was a great show. Um... Yeah, the, the throwing the money at the guy from Yeah, I think that, edition. I mean, in a very mundane way, that is something that a lot of people fantasize about. Similarly, of like putting money on a bed or like, yeah, you, know, you know. Money bed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, people love this idea. I recall one time I looked up what financial advisors advise people to do who've won the lottery. You know, just something I got high about and decided to uh, fall down a rabbit hole. And I did find one hedge fund in New York on their website that literally had a thing about, like, if you win the lottery, what to do. Mm -hmm. And what I enjoyed about it is they were like, yeah, okay, fine. Take a little bit of money to do some crazy stuff with. Light a cigar with a $100 bill. And I was like, why? Would, whose big fantasy upon winning a lot of money is like, I'm going to light a $100 bill on fire and light my cigar with it. They <laughs> put it in this explainer like it was such a common fantasy that I was like, I got to just remember. Well, you know what? They're out there. Uh, yeah. You know? I mean, I think you're very <laughs> underestimating the dude's rock demographic. <laughs> <laughs> But it's just like, I understand other forms of dudes rock so much more. Like huh. shooting guns and fucking. Do any of like us even these... enjoy smoking cigars? Absolutely not. They're disgusting. You're not even supposed to inhale. Yeah, it's You're like, just what like am I... doing a weird huff thing. But if I need to look cool, yeah. I'll smoke a cigar. Now I feel the antithesis. If I need to just crash gender stereotypes, I'll smoke a cigar. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like the times I smoked a cigar, it's like the times I was like, yeah, I'm cool. 
for a girl where I felt like I, I would get some credence in that area more than I ever purely wanted to smoke a cigar. So. Yeah, I mean, I only do it to play a role that society has assigned to me. I don't <laughs> enjoy. I don't enjoy anything I do. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest. That's canon for the yeah. show. I feel like nobody yeah. enjoys what we do. For the antithesis. Well, no, no. That. Marlo specifically yeah, no. does not enjoy. <laughs> Anything. Anything. But I feel like the antithesis of that is the song If I Had a Million Dollars by Bare Naked Ladies. Because that's just like, I'll buy you a monkey. Because monkeys are cool. And uh, yeah, you could probably pull that off for a million. What else is going on? We've got an unprecedented number of federal executions happening happening. during the lame duck season. I actually did think that was an interesting thing. I saw a few headlines were really focused on more so seemingly the lack of decorum in uh, having the executions go forward during this specific time frame rather than questioning, you know, the efficacy the efficacy, the the value of uh, capital punishment in the first place. I'm a big no on capital punishment because, look, yes, if it was my loved one who was murdered, if the state isn't going to give me an arena to battle royale, murder this perpetrator, then I don't want it, okay? Would what do you, I want? given the chance that you would take over the government yourself, would you not want capital punishment for Elon Musk? I mean, the, is that something you're willing to abolish just because, uh, you know? The necessary and, self-defense of the working class is not capital punishment. Yeah. See, I, well, I don't believe these states should ever be empowered to kill anybody. It just seems like a bad vibe, man. I do have a hard moral line there in terms of so the death penalty. You're not going to put Jeff Bezos in a guillotine. And you okay. wouldn't pull the lever and release the blood out of Jeff Bezos. You're, you're going on record. I, I am going on record. I am, I am going on record because I do think it's a weird, creepy thing to kill somebody in this way where they're very passive. The state just injects them with something or shoots them or electrocutes them or et cetera. Like, it's weird to me. I would be more comfortable if we contrive a scenario where uh, it felt as though Jeff Bezos was attacking me. That was a thing in The Meaning of Life, right? The Monty Python movie. The guy who was condemned to death got to choose the way he died. And he was running away from like a hundred shirtless women who who were chasing him off of a cliff. And he fell off the cliff into his grave, which they covered up swiftly and had the funeral like within 10 seconds of him falling. That seems like a, good, a little bit of give and take. There's still capital punishment, but like you get to Well, I'm not saying, okay, yeah, there's like several things that happen for me there. Like, I'm not saying that me, the person, is better or above the desire to engage in things like violence. murdering my enemies, violence, etc. A punishment that's severe, that serves as a message. Like, I see where those things would be appealing. But if I'm talking about what I would empower 
a ruling class, a government with. No, fucking get out of here. No, shut the fuck up. And it's so weird. I don't care also when the victims' families are like, I just think it's great that, you know, justice is being served. I, I honestly, I don't give a shit. I don't, I think that's like a weird... The one man who was put to death this week, I'm a little more familiar with his story, mostly because Kim Kardashian was advocating for him. I know the family of the victims involved in the crime, they weren't calling for his sentence to be commuted or blah, blah, blah. They were sort of, they sort of put out these statements like, I'm just glad justice could be served. And like, I know when uh, he goes to heaven, he'll be forgiven. We forgive him. Now that he's dead, we can forgive him. Um, You know, which I just, fuck that fake Christianity bullshit. That's not how it actually works, you dipshits. You don't get to say, Yeah, people need to actually learn theology. On the condition of you murdering this man. That's not how it fucking works. I understand wanting to punish a person who's harmed somebody you love, etc. But yeah, I don't think the weird sanitized thing that also, you know, ends up making them money. The state, it's weird. It's gross. You know, I'm making fun a little bit of the reporting that is seemingly focusing on the civility issue of doing these executions during this time. But I do think that part of the purpose of pushing these executions forward is a weird last ditch Trump thing to be like, look how tough we are. We like killed a few on our way out. Like, uh. which I mean, that is what some people respond to. That's what some people see at, like as if the people who are currently being incarcerated, trapped, <laughs> waiting to be killed, like that you've really accomplished something by like pushing their deaths through um, at the last months of your tenure there. It's, it's very funny to me because it reminds me of like just what a silly childlike morality people well, have. I was, um, I am interested. I saw the the show Ratchet, and that had a plot line where the Vincent D'Onofrio California governor was gearing up for re-election, and he was conflicted as to whether or not he should. It became like this political decision where he wanted to execute somebody using the electric chair or if it was possible to knock their brains out with a lobotomy. That was like this tension in whatever, like 1960, yeah, 61. We were all so fucking where it was, kinky about it. Yeah, it was like this sexual, but also politically motivated. What if we just knocked out a part of the brain? Like, like well, what are you even talking well, about? It was, it's more about, like, to your point, it was traditionally seen as a way of getting basically their approval rating up by showing law and order and one spectacle way of doing so was to issue a bunch of executions and then that would get you elected because people would feel this kind of unconscious and here i am talking about freud again like this you know state of unconscious 
safety. Well, and because it's so permanent and severe, right, the justification for it becomes so serious and mythical. So it's not just like the act of performing capital punishment for people to see. The very nature of you doing capital punishment provokes a rationalization for Mm -hmm. it. Because the truth of oh, we killed this person for no good reason is too like harsh to bear, even though we've proven over and over again that we kill innocent people way more than I think uh, anyone should be comfortable with. There is a segment of the population who'd rather kill a few innocent people than let, let a single bad guy go. You know, as if it's that binary of a decision. Well, that reminds me of something Zizek talks about, which is the nature of ideology, whereas ideology for Marx is doing something but not knowing why you do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he proposes that the action itself is the ideology. It's not thinking about it. It's not rationalizing. It's the action itself it's that knowing, the ideology. It's knowing what you're doing, but doing it anyway. And therefore, you don't actually know what you're doing, even though you know what you're doing. Uh, I mean, is mm-hmm. basically what he's playing and with. And I feel like capital punishment falls because it is very much one of those things where you know what you're doing, but you don't know why you're doing it. But also you don't care even if you do. Because the end result is re-election. The end result is one person who you don't view as human anymore. Well, being- well, yeah, it really depends on how comfortable someone is with the idea that there are other people out there that are utterly different and beneath them and not worthy of the same considerations as they are that's often what people mean by equality it's not like actually everyone being treated equally but like i get treated nice and then like these scumbags get treated like fucking scumbags (laughs) like that's often what it is so when people who are very in favor of capital punishment, they really assume that the majority of people on death row are of the scumbag variety, right? Because it's like a very safe way to chop it up. Well, that reminds me again of something I recently read about bourgeois freedom. I think it's sort of what you're mm-hmm. discussing. Like the equality is not egalitarian. Everyone isn't considered equal. They know that some people are less than equal, but as long as they feel like everyone else is equal, then it's okay to reduce others to inhumanity. Yeah, and I just I do think there are a lot of people whose uh, commitment to equality is not as sturdy as they assume it to be. It's a simulation. You know, I think it's an assimilation. Mm -hmm. And one thing that bothers me when people talk about Marxism, for instance, is they assume or project their idea of egalitarianism onto Marxism. And they assume Mm -hmm. that Marx is for equality of everyone when that's not necessarily the case. Well, and also, like, when you say something like equality of everyone, what does that mean? Right. 
By what metrics? In what way? Does everyone get literally 117 grains of rice? Like, like, is this what we're talking about? No, I don't think so. But people like to play in those mind palaces of just like pure fantasy. You know, it's not pure ideology. <laughs> it's, it's fucking pure fantasy, man. That was the chapter I just read. Ideological fantasy versus ideological, yeah, oh, whatever. No. Marlo and I are reading the same <laughs> same book, yeah. and I'm trying to apply it to everything. Yeah, we're two annoying people who have are reading Sublime Object of Ideology for the first time. It's pretty bad. Yeah, and I'm somebody who watched Godmothered today. So and Zizek would <laughs> probably <laughs> agree that you made the better decision. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I think me and Zizek would have like a really good hang. I is is my okay. feeling. I am it. trying. Uh, we looked it up today, and we got to sign up for some place. We're gonna reach out to their PR place because he's been going on podcasts like nothing. He needs something. Yeah, to he's do. very lonely in Slovenia. <laughs> he's not allowed to go out. He's miserable. He went on Red Scare, which I watched the entirety of the interview for. How um, was it? I didn't consume the red uh, scare. I don't either. I just watched it because he was on and I wanted to mm -hmm. see how they interviewed him. And it seemed like they've only read his pandemic book. They questioned him based around that. And he just barreled over their questions like tank going through like very flimsy wall. Uh, <laughs> and they were just like, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, it pulled bad. You know, identity politics bad. He does this thing where he assumes every, well, he sees, you know, people younger than him and he just assumes everyone forgets things or doesn't know things. And so he says, you're too young for this, like every sentence. But I remember when Habermas said this and they're just sitting there like, yeah, I know Habermas. But yeah, he went on a Twitch stream too. He complains about his terrible diabetes. Oh, and man. he seems very, very miserable. Because I would definitely love to do something where we like eat hot dogs with him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I've heard that he doesn't like being approached and he, he's got his own like Look, lecture track. Zizek, we're gonna kidnap you. <laughs> you we're gonna go to Slovenia. Did you ever uh, watch the movie Misery and do you feel that it's ideology? Because that's going to become yeah, relevant gonna, really quick. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Could you imagine? Could you imagine could you doing imagine misery to Zizek? In a cabin, Zizek tied but to a bed. The whole time, he's giving, like, an analysis of the movie Misery and his situation. <laughs> like it's uh, Pervert's Guide to Cinema, the film he did. Yeah, he goes on a long tangent just about Stephen King in general. So, uh, like, <laughs> yeah, it'd be something like, well, really, ideology is when you are not tied to a bed. Would basically be <laughs> it. it's like, no, actually, the real is being up from the bed. Your reality is being tied to the bed. I don't fucking know. It'll be some shit like that. It'll be cool. This reminds me of this old Soviet joke, you know, this old Stalinist joke when they say, I won a car through the lottery, and then the car wasn't a bike, and it wasn't one through the lottery, it was stolen. Mm. 
That's his joke that he starts out. I, I'm ready for our interview. This is my preparation. <laughs> yeah, do you got jokes about cars and bikes, man? <laughs> oh, you know, we could oh, all just read I, I all of like Zizek's to... jokes and ask him questions from that. That would be the we'll easiest just one. talk about comedy. Well, okay, actually, Bunny, you should get the book Zizek's Jokes. It's like a yes, uh, bit over 100 pages, and love- it's a collection of jokes that Zizek likes that he then writes an, a little analysis for. It's wonderful. I, um, yeah, I no, will it's, do it's this. truly and wonderful also, and the most approachable the fucking idea. thing that man's written. I love the idea of interviewing Zizek, but him thinking that I'm under the impression that he is a comedian. (laughs) (laughs) And I just think there's a language barrier, right? (laughs) And and then um, I feel like Zizek would uh, play along for a minute. (laughs) Okay, we'll do this thing where I am comedian. I mean, philosopher is like comedian. Um, and uh, I do. I think he'd be nice about it. I think. Or he'll very, just ignore you cute. and barrel over uh, off this tangent <laughs> he thought of that of a thing he thought about comedians one time, or a comedian he saw, mm-hmm. or an interview with a comedian, like uh, Jerry Seinfeld. You remember this? Uh, he had that show in the nineties, the yada yada yada, and so Ooh, on. I could um, see. Yeah. No. I could see Zizek and I going off on a tangent on some like Commedia dell'arte archetype oh, yeah, bullshit. Sure. <laughs> okay, I, I found my favorite joke from the book, and it's one that he uses multiple times to illustrate. I have a favorite uh, joke from the book, but you go ahead. <laughs> he uses it to illustrate uh, social justice warriors and left liberal white people who hate themselves, mm-hmm. and. His joke is obviously the Derrida one. There is an old Jewish joke loved by Derrida Uh, about a group of Jews in the synagogue publicly admitting their nullity in the eyes of God. First, a rabbi stands up and says, Oh God, I know I am worthless. I am nothing. After he has finished, a rich businessman stands up and says, beating himself on the chest, Oh God, I am worthless, obsessed with material wealth. I am nothing. After this spectacle, a poor ordinary Jew also stands up and also proclaims, oh God, I am nothing. A rich businessman kicks the rabbi and whispers in his ear with scorn, what insolence? Who is that guy who dares to claim he is nothing too? <laughs> that is a good It's a joke. really good joke. It's got all the good parts. It sticks to the Jews. Uh- <laughs> well, it's a, that joke was originated in Yiddish and was like told among the Jewish community. I like that's sure. a classic uh, like it has, it has the tenants of like it has century the tenets of that Jewish kind of joke. joke. I am course am making just a plain you're, anti-Semitic yeah. joke as, you're doing as a you red do. Scare I'm in comedy. Yeah, that's right. That's what we do when we're uh, white women and well, <laughs> we're on a podcast. His point that he always makes with that joke is that he compares it to a left liberal white person who says, oh, white people, you know, we are the causes of all the problems. We cause colonialism. We caused imperialism. We go over, you know, oh, God, we are nothing. We are the worst people in the world. Mm -hmm. And then, like, you know, if somebody of a different race says the same thing, they look at him and go, or, or somebody who's poor 
Well, it's not even that. It's where it's in the guise of prostration, Uh but it is very much like, look at me, look at me, my good pureness, look at me, be so gloriously aware of my privilege. And, you know, it's often got no real humility in it, which I think is part of what people want Uh from white people. (laughs) I think that's part of it, not just uh, to say the words, right? Which I think is all the Tumblrification of the discourse has gotten us, is that people learn like Uh the lingo very quickly. That's why you have a ton of like racist assholes who have Black Lives Matter in uh-huh. their bios because they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They know what's safe for them and acceptable for them to show that they are like quote unquote good people. But they're not really like interested in engaging with the things that might be an actual problem, not just uh, quote unquote problematic. <laughs> um, so I did see a fun Tumblrification on Twitter uh, this week, and it was somebody. I can't ever tell now whether it's uh-huh. a sincere request or somebody fucking trolling, right? Uh, it was like, put your race in your bio, especially if you're white. And then somebody was like, why? And I was like, yeah, because some BIPOC, you know, B-I-P-O-C, I don't know how we're saying that. I've heard all the BIPOC, yeah. So they might not want to engage with white people, right? And I'm I'm so sorry. It's hilarious to me because I just, it's still mostly white people in the United States. <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. Just like I'm sorry, people who are mad at the Bodega tweet. I'm sorry that New York City is literally the biggest city in the fucking country by a lot. And yeah, it is more important. I'm sorry. It is. What happens here is more important. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's more specific, and um, it is a thing. Uh, right, right. I, who's lived a lot of my adult life in New York City, but is not from here originally, I know the joys of a Wawa, a Royal Farms, a CVS. It's not a bodega, you fucking No, yeah, it's so Upon moving home, has been a huge <laughs> Wawa fan. Uh, Wawa is absolutely not a goddamn bodega. There are aspects of yeah, it's great bodegas that I absolutely miss. I can't order a sandwich on a screen. Yeah, but like Wawa is very, very tight. Like you can't form a real connection with a cat in a Wawa. Exactly. There's never a small kitten who swipes at my feet that I'm surprised by in Rite Aid, you know? There will never be a time when you look down and you're like, oh, I'd like a Kit Kat. But before you get a Kit Kat, you have to remove the sleeping creature that's who's just <laughs> curled up looking so peaceful. Also, you uh, can like move to a new plate and within a day <laughs> go to the bodega and go, all right, which one of you guys sells weed? And that's all you yeah. have to do. Or like you go to the bodega and you figure out like, okay, when are the children <laughs> right. in charge? Exactly. Uh, which is <laughs> oh, yeah. 
But yeah, I don't even, I'm sorry, I went down this tangent. I did, I did have it in the pocket because though I, I did know New York was the biggest city, I actually looked up the numbers and I was like, oh, New York's the biggest city by like mm-hmm. a lot. <laughs> so shut up, everyone. But you know, I, New York I, might be getting heard of New York. Oh, wait, what? I mean, they've heard of New York. I haven't heard. You need the Cohen yeah. brothers to teach me about your cities. Well, and which is great. Like, I've written quite a few uh, scripts that are set in my hometown of Baltimore. But it's because Baltimore is a great second. Some people would say third tier city. So it's better Uh, than (laughs) Yeah. So, but where people have some associations about it, maybe Americans do, but you could tell people literally anything and they might believe you about it. So I like to use Baltimore the same way Stephen King uses Mm. Maine. Just like, it's a real place, but like, I've made up a good chunk of it. Baltimore is just I assume it's just a David Lynch at all times. In my pursuit of looking up the populations of American cities, I found out something interesting, which is that technically Baltimore is a more populous city Hmm. than Atlanta. And I wouldn't have known that. And now I'm completely not intimidated to go to Atlanta. (laughs) Well, is that like an L.A. thing? It just went into my brain. Well, L.A. But, is the like second most popular city in the country, but it's like five million less than but New York. But the other York. thing it's like with a huge L.A. Drop-off. is there's a lot of like, neighborhoods that are kind of like technically a different city, but considered like more or less a part of L.A. And is Atlanta like that is basically what I'm asking. I think Atlanta is like that, but I also think that uh, Baltimore is arguably like that in a way. So um, now, yes, this past week and a half, I'm very interested at looking at everything through a population uh, lens. (laughs) So, Yeah, so basically any city that is technically less populous than cities that I grew up in, like Baltimore, uh, I for sure feel better than you. (laughs) But I do think it's funny when people outside of New York get really mad when anybody within New York enjoys being in New York. Yeah, it's a a lovely place. Yeah, like I get it. Like I too was a child in the 90s and I got to hear all the like sex and the cityfication, you know, where it's like, oh, the city's a character. Look, the first two months I lived in New York ever, a homeless man pooped in front of me. It's like, great. Also, I love that when people say... um, the phrase, welcome to New York, it's almost only ever because something bad <laughs> has just happened to you. <laughs> I do really like that. Like, oh, well, welcome to New York, you fucking dipshits. Um, I do like that. I also like that if you spend a good amount of time in New York, you are prepared for other places mean people so that is cool i know at least from a comedy perspective i will go down swinging saying that actually uh baltimore has one of the greatest comedy scenes you'd have to know it but it's actually like if this were a meritocracy 
you'd be like, oh my God, Baltimore is great. Uh, but New York is a nexus. It's a center. But being in New York where people are always like reflexively like busting your balls for no reason, it just makes it really easy to like go to a place like the LA. You get to dominate. It's awesome. I was so confident as a comic that I got booked by accident in Los Angeles and I uh, took that spot and I did it. So, and it went great. I got killed. Um, but, but yes, there's another bunny in comedy and um, I was contacted by mistake. When the person said, hey, are you available this date? What I answered was yes. That's the rule in entertainment. If you get a mistaken opportunity, you have to take it. Otherwise, you're a dumb yeah. idiot. That's the rules. Oh, sure. You're the right. one in entertainment. I don't fuck. Is it not like that for lawyers, I don't Marlo? Know. <laughs> if you go in, you can't just like try some other case because you're in the building. Yeah. No? All right. That's okay. That's why I only want to be a lawyer on TV. New York might get a new mayor. How bad is it? How I mean, like, obviously, like, ugh, Andrew Yang. But I do think it'd be fun oh, to have no. Andrew Yang as no. the mayor of New York. Don't, don't even <laughs> suggest it. No. Don't you think he'd do at least one No, I don't think he's thing. that cool or funny, even. <laughs> I think he's just... You're right. I I don't like. I realized I thought he grew up in New York for some reason. I don't know why. I think it was. I don't know if I want to admit this on the podcast. No, do it. (laughs) Who's who's gonna cancel you? Okay, you're right. In my mind, I had thought Andrew Yang went to school in New York, but it's because I knew he went to high school with Roxanne Gay. But in my mind, I had conflated Roxanne <laughs> Gay with um, Supreme Court Justice okay. Elena Kagan, who I know went to Hunter College Elementary School. <laughs> For some I reason, this I got you were like, going with that. merged in. I thought you just mistaken yeah, it's for not, a different it's just Asian weird. man. Weird. That's what the story is. <laughs> no, it was same Asian man because no, because Andrew Yang for sure did go to high school with Roxanne Gay, but for some reason I had conflated her with Elena Kagan, and I had thought that Roxanne Gay went to school at Hunter College Elementary, also because I had in my nanny years uh, one of the kids went to that school, so I was like somewhat familiar with it. So then I looked it up, and I was like. Oh, Oh, no, 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 no. Roxanne Gay and Andrew Yang actually went to a very upper crusty, mm. like, private school where Mark Zuckerberg also went to. So a bunch of fucking shitheads. <laughs> so it's like one of these schools that was like a tier above the prep school that I went to for high school, right? The school I went to is prestigious on a certain level, but there's this whole echelon above it that are like these sort of Tony boarding-ish schools. This one is definitely one of those. Yes, yeah, so I had had this whole like experience of being like, oh, never mind. Andrew Yang wasn't any of those things, I thought. Only because this is all pinned on me remembering a tweet from Roxanne Gay where she was joking about how Andrew Yang danced and was like, he's a good dancer. He was a good dancer in high school. And then people were like, OMG, you went to high school together? Which is what passes for things these days. It's just like, oh my God, these two people of notoriety know each other. What? Let's write an article about it. It's bad. 
so yeah, Andrew Yang is just whatever. But I do like li- so many people fucking love the idea. I don't understand of that Yang, at all. And it is Marlo had a lot of strong feelings. Thank I have no tolerance. And, I want to contextualize this. This is resulting because there was some internal poll run by some hedge fund or whatever, finding that Andrew Yang got twenty percent of a popularity poll against the guy who thinks he's got it in the bag, which is Scott Stringer, who is the current comptroller. Well, I will give Andrew Yang that I've heard Andrew Yang's name. Well, that's what it's yeah, that's, that's what they're like saying. All of it. It's like it's a, it's a yeah, name recognition the game. Scott Stringer is because I'm not a fucking weirdo who pays attention to that shit. It's like twenty percent versus 14% and then like five other people pulling under 10%. But Marlo, you... But all that matters is fucking like name recognition. You know what I mean? Like From what I read, he's teaming up with like a Bloomberg machine to try to recreate the businessman ethos of Michael Bloomberg as Mm -hmm. the entrepreneurial mayor. And I know Marlo has a lot of thoughts about Andrew Yang. Well, yeah, I know, but I want you to give context for why you hate Andrew Yang. Yeah, why do you hate Andrew Yang? And why isn't it a good idea to put a rich guy in charge of a, a municipality? And why is he even UBI? And why is he conflated no. with socialism? I've had so many fucking dumb people. Yeah. Ask me if I like Andrew Yang because they perceive UBI as a form of socialism. And I'm like, no, actually, my friend Marlo. Because I will, okay. But I'll give you a rundown. I think I do know why people have that impression. And I think it's because Andrew Yang is one of the few people, like, this is how sad everything is, is that, like, Andrew Yang in what he proposes is one of the only people to suggest anything close to a not weirdly means-tested application of sentence, right? Yeah, so the way people perceive that as if it is socialism because it's a handout, right? And I think that's actually one of no. the best things about Andrew Yang. Like, if I was going to say something positive about him, I do think it's important that we have more figures brave enough to suggest giving people money even when it's not means tested. I think there is a issue where we've pathologized means testing with specifically like Democrats. They want to fucking throw it on everything to like, oh, I'll show you I'm worthy, daddy. Like it's it's sick. It's a fucking whatever. So I do kind of think in a small way, suggesting a not means tested application of funds is not without its positives. Though, once you do get deeper, you do realize that what Andrew Yang is proposing specifically, or was proposing specifically, is at the expense of broader... And that's uh, vaguely the problem, and also it's just a more general problem with the way that UBI is being done, is it's stepping back from actually having a worker or popular control over the market and just kind of pumping money into the market. 
I think this is difficult for a lot of people to understand. Is an exertion of control over the market. Just giving everyone a voucher to go shop for healthcare is just putting money into that market. But there's another level of shit that I don't think your average person is necessarily familiar with where I'm a little out of my depth in this area. But the economists who pushed, you know, who are like, let's suck the dick of the free hand of the market, laissez-faire capitalism, la, la, la. Some of them even suggested that eventually, right, it's an inevitability. You need a UBI in order to maintain the system. So there is like a thing that I think that people who are jazzed about the idea aren't seeing the possibility of this weird situation where you have your like robber baron overlords, (laughs) but we're all provided a modicum of bullshit, but people are suffering so much that it does. I mean, the the uh, classic example though would be the Gulf states. No, oh, you I mean, mean Florida? <laughs> yeah, no, Saudi Arabia is a classic example. That joke is just for me and Steve, I guess. No, I'm not talking Marlo about doesn't about derive any pleasure from yeah, life. Yeah, I enjoy nothing. But, <laughs> nothing. um, yeah, no, I, where you just have a completely autocratic system, both in the public and private sector, and a population that is provided for through essentially a very generous stipend, and they all get bullshit bureaucratic jobs within the government because there's literally nothing else for them to do. And then all the uh, manual labors provided by this completely disenfranchised uh, quasi-slave immigrant block. And yeah, that's essentially what you get out of that and where America would be going with that. And what Andrew Yang talks about, the other thing that's really exciting for left progressives, which I find to be disheartening, is, is automation. And that also seems wrongheaded coming from Andrew Yang. I'd say this having watched this Amazon trailer about how they're rolling out yeah. drones for delivery service. And I'm literally driving I- deliveries to people from Walgreens or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching Amazon well, it's- deliver yeah. from Walgreens or, you know, drones deliver from Walgreens and parts of the country. And the anxiety about automation is a valid one. But the way that Andrew Yang talks about it makes it seem like he just wants to control the robots. I have a similar take on this as I did with his approach to UBI, where he's like one tiny step towards a like correct way of viewing something like automation. But in the landscape where... We've all accepted that your worth as a human being in this society is tied to whether you can be a fucking cashier at Walmart or not. I would love to see a leader say, yeah, we can take these steps towards automation, which means you don't have to work as much. Like, literally. Like, that is, like, the A to B that, like, no leaders are taking anyone to because the powers that be are not only relying on exploiting workers, but there is this hot, horny punitiveness in the United States that like exceeds people's 
personal interests almost, where the idea of somebody suffering that you've decided, it's not that dissimilar to when people think about capital punishment, actually. But when you've decided this underclass, this unskilled laborers, this whatever are deserving of their suffering, whereas you are not. Like, what is that about? What does that actually get you? Well, except well, like a weird horny thing. Okay, and just like so everyone I, stop yeah. getting off on that. Go, Marlo. Okay, so yeah, on the surface, like yeah, automation should be considered a good thing, and it's only because of the weird way that capital uh, alienates workers from their labor that we don't see it as a good thing. But and Andrew Yang's solution is essentially let's just pay off Americans to get themselves laid off, and we'll pay them to shop for us. Is like basically his plan. While robots and immigrants, but we say that part quieter, do all the bullshit. But the the, uh, thing is, uh, at the end of the day, he's literally just suggesting pay people to shop. There's no thought to, okay, why should a windfall go to shareholders who are literally at this point doing nothing but letting robots make money for them? Because the problem is, like, people are afraid, in my opinion, people are afraid to draw the lines if okay if we don't need workers then why do we need some people to make all the money from the robots and other people to not like the robots are just being robots that's where it seems really weird where instead of a federal jobs program which would do a better like transfer of capital to a population or an underclass and allow for you know, a universal program. His solution is like, okay, here's a bunch of money for people that are no longer going to be cashiers at Walmart, or in my case, no longer going to be able to deliver to people from Walgreens. Basically, I work in a team of 40 people. You know, you'll need maybe five people to work eight drones each to do all 40 stores or whatever. And that requires a different skill set than this underclass of workers. So let's focus on the people who have these science and engineering degrees and who are rich enough in order to get these degrees of the future. And then you, you know, inequality goes up. And it's also like pretending as if people's work positions are actually commiserate with their yeah. their merit and their skill set in a way that supersedes other things. Like that is just fundamentally not a real thing. So a good robber baron would see the potential here to keep a safe and satiated underclass preventing his Probably inevitable you literally just need to sell shit. Right? That like, but, uh, <laughs> like that's also I just think these people who stand to make the money off of the robots, not seeing their opportunity to foment a modicum of safety for themselves, like having the opportunity to have robots do labor and somehow provide the underclass with enough resources that they have disposable income to spend at your stupid robot made shit. This is the nexus of what is strange to me in a profound way. Yeah, I mean, essentially getting to the point where 
the government's job is to pay people to then give that money back to the people who own robots. That's literally what the economy is yeah. being suggested is. If the powers that be gave the working people of this country relief in the form of money, almost all of that money would be then there'd be a trickle up situation. Uh, <laughs> and this is like the hilarious possibility that I just, I think it's very funny that obviously most fucking people would just make themselves more comfortable and not in a like, oh, I'm going to buy mad like material goods, but like, I'm going to get rid of this debt. Mm -hmm. I'm going to like pay this thing off or whatever. Like just give that money right back up the line mm -hmm. to the credit holders, to the whatever. So there's really like in a broad view, there's not a real downside to the people who hold the cards. They just are addicted. Extracting to profit. This pun yeah, the punitive horniness of it, doing it so they can feel as though it's at the expense of someone almost seems to be part of the purpose, which I only focus on because often people in these upper echelons, the people who watch Wolf of Wall Street thinking it was aspirational, they pretend like they are very cold and calculating and like just very, you know, surgically getting in there and doing what's, you know, smart and blah, blah, blah. But no, they're still like emotionally attached to punishing people in a way where they could actually probably profit more <laughs> if they weren't attached to this thing. That's like socially well, I feel like perpetuated, you know? Because like among rich people, there is the belief uh, among wealthy people that they've got to be on mm -hmm. the lookout all the time. People want to take advantage of them and la, la, la. And sometimes if you've ever had the you know, experience of engaging with a really wealthy person or someone who grew up really wealthy, sometimes they'll engage with you in this way where they are suspicious of you and... It's funny because sometimes you're like, I'm not even in a position to know how I could get your money. Uh, like, just be cool, it, man. It does remind I, me of I a return know. to Bloomberg because that's more or less what Bloomberg mm. did to New York City. Uh, yeah, and there were a lot of a lot of who a praised lot of it. Roles. Well, people love that idea that if somebody's rich enough, working then they're in bad not. faith. Yeah, they're somehow, oh, they're well, above it all. The other, the other aspect of it, I think, which uh, that goes to your point about horniness or libidinal politics, punitive horniness <laughs> punitive is the horniness. perfect <laughs> phrase for what would be a militarization of workforce in the same way that Bloomberg militarized the police force, which is a worldwide global phenomenon. If you go anywhere, they're far more militarized as a police force. Um, but just the idea of the same technology that became ascendant in warfare during the Obama years becoming the ascendant replacement for uh, a large swaths of the workforce, you know, drone technology, 
replacing the invasion. That's a good point, because what I remember from the Obama years and specifically from Obama being kind of the figurehead for drone warfare. Of course, I remember him remarking that, oh, hey, I'm like actually pretty good at killing people. But also that there was this canard of an idea that with drone warfare you could surgically i remember that phrasing exactly surgically go in there and like blow up exactly Uh like who you wanted to blow up and now all these years later probably anybody who listens to this podcast is aware that 90 percent of the people we killed with drone warfare in the obama years were civilians (laughs) and that's needs to be put in the context of that it was the State Department's practice to mark any male who was killed by a drone as a, as an enemy combatant. If they died, oh, they that's were That's the kind of <laughs> like, end goal of technocratic liberalism in the most well, yeah, literal and, sense. And I, technocratic being the benevolent force for good replacing warfare and making an industry out of of warfare. Just to be like uh, this dumb pop culture bitch that I am, but also I just see this like elevating of this archetype of like the cool, calm, collected nerd who like could, you know what I mean? Like this is all Mm -hmm. was projected onto Obama. Like, Oh, he's Mr. Tall, Professor Man, and like, oh, he's not hot-headed. He's taking in all this info and then making these executive decisions and like that that, of professionalism. Like mythology there is a lot of people found that idea very compelling. And what I found most disappointing about just the figure of Obama himself is like his complete unwillingness to engage with this aspect of his legacy whatsoever in any meaningful way. He is very comfortable with just like putting it to bed, like, boop, boop, I guess I was good at killing people. Good night. Bye, everyone. Or at least that's my impression of it. And I think that's a lot of a lot of people who see themselves as like bleeding heart, peace dove people are very comfortable with this idea about Obama, too. It's a little bit like the current discussion where people are comparing Mm. Trump to W, and some people are remarking, arguably correctly, that Mm. W was actually indeed worse than Trump because he's got more deaths on his hands, and you only see it that way if you count non-American deaths as equal. So, I tangled with a mutual um, friend of ours about that and asked him if he ever considered porn shoots with dead Iraqi soldiers. Yeah, I, mean, I think uh, and this kind of goes yeah. back to Zizek. Um, he talks about this all the time, but this wariness that we should all feel. Actually, more than wariness, but tremble with fear over the phrase capitalism with a human face. That That was pretty much Andrew Yang's slogan, I think. For his campaign. Yeah, I'm close to that. Yeah, capitalism with a human face. Is that what you call human capitalism? Yeah, that, that that's right. Uh, human-centered capitalism. Yeah, and that's what's annoying. It's almost like a Soviet doublespeak. And here again, I'm kind of 
It's definitely a double speak um, because what irritates me, and I'm sure you guys will not like entirely agree with me on this, but I do think not that I would entirely be on board with it, but I do think a cleverer person could actually come up with some simulacrum of, so to speak, capitalism with a human face, right? But I think it would resemble a lot more like keeping a safe satiated underclass to can spend their money at Walmart. Oh, it'd be more social uh, Like that's that's like, what it would be. Like a, a larger welfare state. Yeah, larger welfare state, but also like there is this weird resistance to giving mm-hmm. lower class people anything, right? To the point where even when giving lower class people things would benefit the elites and the ruling class, like still people are resistant. I'm like super interested in this because if we were truly under lizard weird overlords of, you know, they they're totally detached from their humanity, I think we'd be getting a lot more free shit. To be honest, I think there's like a really weird attachment to feeling like you need to punish people. And I feel Americans particularly very into it. Capitalism with a human face. I hate (laughs) it. I hate everything about it. Capitalism with a human face just makes me think of like the most sad uh, it re- moments it of anime of, I've ever it seen. It reminds me of when I did DMT. <laughs> Not to get too Joe Rogan-y. Hey, I've done DMT. I've also done ayahuasca. <laughs> I'm like Joe Rogan. Rogan never done ayahuasca. fucking bitch. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> He's only talked to people about it. He's only smoked just, DMT. Like, He's never actually done fucking bucket. ayahuasca. Like, do it one of his shows. It's so funny. No, he's scared. He's all into weird fitness shit. I'm sure he's shat his pants before. Yeah. uh, Oh, he totally has. Uh, What's funny is that there was this one CNN reporter who like is now one of like the prominent figures in sort of doing journalism about plant medicines around the world and their application and whatever. She literally went on Joe Rogan. He told her about ayahuasca. Him having not actually done ayahuasca, she leaves the Joe Rogan show <laughs> and then like immediately flies down to Peru to do ayahuasca. <laughs> and like it becomes her whole life. Like she's like this expert now and whatever. But I still think it's so funny that she did this inspired by Joe Rogan, That's who so still as of this moment I, has not I, actually I knew, himself done ayahuasca. He doesn't think he needs to do it because he's done DMT, which is the active ingredient. But let me tell you, as someone who's done both, I knew knew people in an ayahuasca cult in Bushwick. Definitely the way I got to do ayahuasca was via a friend who kind of got roped into a international ayahuasca cult of sorts. Though, you know what? More power to you. The shamans from these indigenous people who are making bank um, by facilitating these ceremonies. Uh, it's very popular to believe that you should kind of do two or three ayahuasca trips like in a row. Just like get real deep with it, you know? And of course, that would involve having somebody guide you for all of those trips or whatever. So it easily 
You can sell to some tech bro. $5,000. I'll take you on your ayahuasca journey. Be three times. We'll be in a yurt, etc. So that's what a lot of it is. But I do think it's very funny that Joe Rogan has not actually done ayahuasca, right. which is like DMT lasts for like 15 minutes. Ayahuasca is a very long, similar, it's kind of in between the length, mm. I'd say, of psilocybin and LSD lengthwise. It's definitely different than either of those uh, where me personally definitely felt more like uh. social on mushrooms or LSD. <laughs> like, I want to share this experience. Um, ayahuasca, <laughs> I was like, I am in my own place. <laughs> uh. So, uh, we were all yeah, it's way. very different that way. If anybody's asking, does ayahuasca last as long as this podcast episode? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. Andrew Yang. Yeah, we got any shit. final thoughts here? <laughs> yeah, nobody Andrew else. Andrew Yang, though. personally, give me money. Nobody else. And uh Oh yeah, true. What movie? Next Nobody. week, guys, we gotta watch a Christmas movie. Yeah, no, we all promise. Yeah, we oh, we're all gonna, promise we gotta we're watch gonna. Christmas in the city. It's so good. You're gonna have so much fun. So yes, if you wanna join us, we're watching the 2013 classic Christmas <laughs> in the city. No, I don't know what city it is. Ashanti is in it. Um, It's sort of an amalgam of Christmas movie tropes. So, um, and I can't wait to analyze it from a communist perspective. Every little boy and girl To earn as much as they can possibly Then turn around and spend it foolishly We created us a credit card mess We spend the money that we don't possess Our religion is to grow and blow it all So it's shopping every Sunday at the mall
lots of money and things. Ka-ching.